Well, the statistics are jaw-dropping. Did you know that we are losing our children? When you uh, look and see that in evangelical churches and also in some of the non-evangelical churches, they, they hold pretty steady. 70% of the children that are in our church or any church at this point now, 70% will drop out when they graduate from high school. So 7 out of 10 of those teenagers, of those little children, of those Awana kids, of those Sunday school boys and girls, 70% will not be in the church after they graduate from high school. Now it does, in about a decade after that, they start having their own family and their own children, and some of them come back, but it's not a high percentage. It, it may approach half of those. And um, they come back mainly for one reason, and what is that? Because they're starting to have kids. And I think for a lot of us, we still instinctively have the idea that kids ought to be in church, and certainly we would agree with that. But did you know that this is not a new problem? This is something that has been going on for a long, long time. In fact, uh, since it's Wednesday night and we're doing our series in Psalms, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the 78th Psalm. Now, a lot of times we assume that King David wrote all of the Psalms. Well, he didn't. He wrote a lot of them, but he's not the only author of the Psalms. In fact, this is a guy named Asaph. There's a name for one of your uh, grandchildren, maybe. And uh, Asaph is the one who is speaking in this psalm. Sometimes it sounds like maybe the Lord is speaking, but it's actually Asaph who is doing this. And Asaph has a big concern on his heart. In fact, this is one of the lengthier psalms that we will look at. And uh, it has eight stanzas to it. And we're going to take a stanza every week. So obviously, this is going to be an eight-part series. And the idea in it is that Israel is forgetting its history and they're forgetting what God has done for them and therefore they're disobeying God and they're losing their culture and they're losing their morality and the young people that are growing up are falling away from the faith. Now understand, of course, this doesn't mean that the temple is shut down or empty or anything. The sacrifices are going on, the rituals are going on, the feasts are going on, but they've lost any kind of meaning to them. I think we can see this in our own nation. There are a lot of people <clears throat> who may shoot fireworks on the 4th of July and have very little idea, if any, of what the 4th of July is all about. In fact, have you noticed very few people call it Independence Day? They call it the 4th or the 4th of July for obvious reasons, and yet they don't attach really anything to that. When you think about how many people now do not know and do not remember significant events in American history, uh, it's alarming. And it also means that our culture is eroding and the way that we think about our government and the way that we think about civics and the way that we think about the way uh, uh, certain office holders ought to live and ought to act and what their responsibilities are, we virtually have no idea. So this is all something that we can see and something that we understand. This is uh, one of those things that from a pastor standpoint, I have to be careful because I was um, teaching a Sunday school class back when we were going through Esther and I made the statement, <clears throat> and of course we all know how this ends. And someone in the Sunday school class said, 
raised their hand and said, please don't say that. I've never read this. <clears throat> Pardon me. And I don't know how it ends. And uh, we find more and more people that don't know even the basic stories of David and Goliath or who the Apostle Paul was or how he came to be. All of these kind of things tell us that we are lousy at teaching and passing on our history. In fact, I would dare you to even do some checking in the younger generations in your own family and things that you know and things that your grandparents knew things that you assume everybody knows about how the family got here or what kind of work grandpa did and various things like that, you'll be surprised how many of the younger people in your family have no idea because those things get lost if we don't transmit them to the younger generation. And that's why Moses was concerned in the book of Deuteronomy, that second giving of the law. He said, you are to teach this law to your children. Now, when are you supposed to do that? In Sabbath school? Are you supposed to do that only when you go to the synagogue or the temple? Uh, when, when is that supposed to take place? Well, to make sure, the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write it like this. When you're going in and when you're going out, when you're standing, when you're sitting. Well, in other words, this is supposed to be something that is done all the time in every part of life. Because after all, you remember that Christianity is not a way of looking at certain things. It is a certain way of looking at everything. And that's the way the Old Testament was as well. Moses wanted to get it across to the parents, to the people of Israel. This is something that you don't just teach on certain days and at certain times and situations. You don't leave it to the super holy hired men to do it. They have their place. But you are to teach it as a parent. And so whenever we think about these things that we're reading about, I want to make an appeal to you as a parent, to you as a grandparent. Don't just leave this to Sunday school. Don't just leave this to Awana. Talk about these kind of things when you're eating. Talk about these things when you're going over homework. Talk about these things when you're at a sporting event. Wherever it may be, there's always a teachable moment, always a way to relate this to God and to spiritual things, and to teach our children what they ought to know. And do that in every area of life. Like I said, do it with the family. Tell your children your salvation testimony and tell them about your ancestors and tell them about events that have taken place that they may not know of. Do it with the country's history too. If they're not learning it in school, make sure that you take it upon yourself to teach them those things that they need to know. So with all of that in mind and knowing that this is something that has been a perennial problem for thousands of years, let's read this psalm and let's see what Asaph has to say. He says in Psalm 78, beginning in verse 1, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and of His wonderful works that He has done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded your fathers, that they should uh, make them known to their children, just like Moses said. 
verse 6, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. This is intergenerational. That they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. That's verse 1 of the hymn. How would you like to sing something like that on Sunday morning? When you think about what Asaph is saying, it's in the context of what is going on all throughout Scripture. We are to teach others what we have learned. 2 Timothy 2.2, you want to look that up, you can. That's the job of everybody, not just the pastor, but everyone to equip the saints, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, to do the works of ministry. And uh, the old apostle John, as he got older, he uh, wrote in 3 John that, uh, let me get back here to it, but I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are, <clears throat> you are walking in the truth. Listen to this. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's the way it's always been. We want to know that our lives as parents and our instruction as parents and as grandparents or aunts or uncles or teachers in the church or pastors, whoever it might be, we want to know that we have impact. We want to know that our words are being remembered. You want to make an old person's eyes light up? Just start talking to them about what you remember them saying, what you remember them teaching you when you were little. Go to somebody who taught you in Sunday school and tell them, I remember when you said, and their face will light up. Because John is exactly right. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. This is what we want. And we want in the generational train that we're in, we want to pass on what we have learned and what we have done to generations to come. And we want to be remembered. I think it's instinctive in the human spirit that people want to know that their lives will matter even after they die. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said, talks about men of faith and says that even though they're dead, they still speak. I think that's instinctive for all of us. We want to matter. I think that's why we have tombstones, for example. And if you go to old cemeteries, you know, the more important you were, the bigger the tombstone you got. They wanted people to walk by and go, wow, that's impressive, and to go look and see who that was. That's why we make statues of people, Heisman Trophy winners, generals, famous people, government officials. We put statues up of them because people want to be remembered after they're gone. We don't want to be forgotten. In fact, we kind of have a fear of being forgotten. Psychologists tell us that we have two basic needs that drive us, and one is the need for security. We all want that. We want to know that we're going to eat today and tomorrow. We want to know that we're going to be able to retire with dignity. We want that type of security. We want law and order, all of that. But they also tell us that we want significance. Everyone is looking to be significant. And by significance, we mean we don't want to be 
forgotten. We want to be high-impact people upon especially our family members. It's interesting that when you go to uh, older nations where they have royalty, what do they talk about? They talk about this family, the royal family, being from the house of Windsor. What does house of Windsor mean? Family. It's uh, somebody started that, and all of them fit together in that family. It's a remembrance of those who have gone before us, of our ancestors. Now, Asaph, as important as that would be to him as a Jew, as important as it was to know where your roots were, we might say. I mean, after all, didn't God reveal himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? the God of your fathers. This is all kind of tied together. In fact, every 50 years they would have a year of jubilee where debts were canceled out and a land that had been sold and mortgaged went back to the original owners. Who were the original owners? The family out of those tribes of Israel. All of this was supposed to carry this nation on, their rituals on, to give them meaning, to attach to them significance, and to remember that this is what we've been doing for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And so Asaph writes about this because the same concerns were facing Israel at this point as they always have, and even as they face us today. Now, the first thing that I would point out, if you want your children to be impacted by what you believe and what you think is true, and you don't want them to abandon it, I mean, there are no guarantees. There are a lot of people who do everything right and their children rebel. Even God is a perfect father, but his children rebel, don't they? But here's how we have a better shot. Here's how we train up a child in the way they should go so that when they're old, they're not, they will not depart from it. And the first thing I notice from these verses is that you have to have interest in all of this yourself. Children pick up on what's important to you. People pick up on uh, what you really value and what you're passionate about. And uh, you could probably talk to any four or five-year-old in the church and you could find out what really makes the family tick. You could find out what the center, what the hub, what the passion of the family really, really is. For example, it's a cold, stormy day, but it's football season and you've got tickets. What do you do on that particular day? Well, you're up early, you're dressed, you're ready to go, you're wearing the team colors and the logos. You've got everything that you need and you leave early so that you can find a parking place and you'll put up with almost any kind of weather to do that. Think about that. Think about what you do in order to get up and go to work. You like making money, you like having a job, you like the fulfillment that the job gives you. What kind of weather do you go out in? What kind of preparation do you make? Are you on time for it? They can tell. Hobbies, all kinds of things that go on. But then they can also notice how haphazard you are with reading your Bible every day. They can notice your lack of enthusiasm when you say, well, I guess we ought to pray before we eat, and how repetitive it is, how cliche it is, and how heartless it is. They can look and they can see when you will do almost anything and expend almost any amount of energy for other things, 
but there's no time for serving the Lord. There's no time for loving your neighbor. There's no time for church. And there's any excuse in the world to not be at church because everything is more important than church. They pick up on those kind of things. And in their little minds and in their little hearts, they start forming the idea that what is really important is football. What is really important is going to work. And then church is a good thing, but it's not an important thing. Walking with God is a good thing, but it's not really something that anybody is passionate about. And in fact, when they look at that and see that it makes very little difference in your attitude, ad actions, ethics, morals, your treatment of family, the way you discipline, all of that, they grow up to say, if my life gets too hectic, too busy, and I'm too burdened down with things, then it's easy just to jettison the Lord, jettison church, jettison all of those other things, because, after all, it really doesn't make all that much difference. Well, this is where Asaph's concern was. And so he talked here in these very first verses about just the interest of the ones who were supposed to be teaching. And by the way, just so we're clear, he's speaking to the parents here not just the religious leaders. Give ear, O my people, not just priests or people like that, people, and give attention to the law. Incline your heart to the words of my mouth, and I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings. A dark saying is something that is kind of obscure and has been forgotten. We haven't really passed it on. And they're things that we've heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Did you notice there that he talks about inclining your ear? He's talking about there about the um, interest that we show because our family will pick up on the interest and the passion that we have for the things of God. We need to lead them and lead them in the right direction. And the big enemy of this particular point would be just apathy. And sometimes our apathy about things speaks a whole lot louder than anything else. Please don't let your children see that. The second thing that I notice out of these verses, if we want to keep our kids on our team and have them to uh, pick up on the faith that we have, is we've got to be intentional. Asaph is speaking here about not just assuming that it's going to happen. Well, they know, they know. I've heard that from parents before. Well, they know, they know right from wrong, do they? Have you taught them that? Well, they know what the Bible says. Do they? Have you taught them? Oh, yeah, we're in church. We have them in church every time the doors are open. But if your children are little, there are certain things that they don't understand. There are certain things even that they are not going to remember. I'll just ask you, how far back does your memory go? I uh, have a sketchy, sketchy memory of when I was two or three. Very sketchy. I asked my dad about it one time, and it just involved somebody doing something in a yellow house. And as it turns out, when I was that age, we did have some neighbors who did borrow something, and there was a yellow house across the street. But I don't remember details. It's not in high definition at all. I can remember a little bit. I was uh, three when President Kennedy was assassinated, so I remember virtually nothing of that. But it did impact my life. Uh, we lived in Fort Worth, Texas at the time, so you know, being that close to Dallas, there was a lot of stories and a lot of things on the news and a lot of talk about it. 
I don't remember anything about it, except that for a long time I thought that whenever I heard the first part of the Star Spangled Banner, I thought a president had died. That's how it impacted my three-year-old mind. I didn't put all of it together. And I can remember some things when I was four. It gets a lot clearer when I was five, going to kindergarten, and my teacher and a couple of people in the class, that type of thing. And it just gets better as we get older. And I'm afraid that if we do all of our Bible teaching for our children, when they're infants, when we're reading on Bible stories, when they're two and three, and please don't get me wrong, I say put it in their minds any way you can and as early as you can. But for a lot of families, it seems to me that the bulk of what the parents do is before the age of four. How much do you remember from that period of your life? And so we have them in church and we have them in a nursery and I'm so thankful for Bethany and the work that she does in the nursery. I'm so thankful for our preschoolers uh, and their teachers and what they're learning and Bible school and all of those type of things. But we've got to continue this. And our children have got to see after they get into elementary school and then junior high and high school, they've got to see that our faith is practical, that it is relevant, that it guides the way we think, it shapes our worldview, that we live by its morals and ethics, and we've got to be intentional to teach our children these things. As Moses said, when we're going out and coming in, when we're sitting and when we're lying down, all of the every time is a teachable moment. And this is what ASAP is saying to uh, parents and all of us. We will not hide from uh, their children, telling the generation to come the praises of the Lord. How much praise are our children and our grandchildren hearing out of us? We are living in a tough time right now. Are we negative? Are we griping? Are we fearful? Are we complaining? And we don't know what the economy is going to do. But here's the thing for the child of God. As the old saying goes, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And we know all of the things that the Bible promises, God's presence and God's provision, and so we ought to be praising Him. We ought to be giving thanks in all things. This is the will of God, the Bible says. You want to know the will of God? The will of God is to give thanks in everything. We're to rejoice in the Lord always. Asaph is saying, are the children hearing good things about God? Are the children hearing about God's power, God's works, God's provision, the miracles that He does? Are the children hearing about the good, rich, wonderful things out of the Word of God that are life-changing, that are powerful, those things that keep you on track, those things that keep your life from being a shipwreck? Can they see the difference between your life and maybe their aunt and uncle's or cousin's life? And can they see that the difference is following the Word of God, living for the glory of God instead of living for self? Can they see the difference in your family and in your home, in the atmosphere in your home? It's always a great compliment when someone will come into your house and instead of saying, oh, it's beautiful, or oh, who decorated it, or those kind of things, it's wonderful when they walk in and they say, Boy, there's a real sense of peace here in your house. Your children will notice that too. And so we want to be intentional about all of this. And Asaph gives us that instruction 
when you look down at verses 4 all the way through, um, let me find my place here, as it goes down to verse 5, just two verses there. They're long verses, aren't they? And what is the big enemy on this? I've written it down as this, just assumption. We're not intentional about teaching our children because we assume that they know. Well, don't do that. Please don't do that. Understand that they not only need to know the facts about the Bible, they need to see the application of the Scripture in life, in everyday life. Your children are going to have times when maybe they feel bullied. Your children are going to have times when they feel rejected. Your children are going to have times when they feel like they don't have what someone else has and they're covetous about that or envious about that. And that's when you, as a wise parent, have to take the truth of the Scripture and not only instruct them, but you also have to show them by the way that you live that there's a different way and a better way. This is an intentional thing that we are uh, focusing upon. If we don't, we do it to our peril. Well, even worse, to their peril. Thirdly, I want you to see that Asaph is telling us that this has to be intergenerational. Did you catch that? That the generation to come might know them. The children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. Good night. How many generations are there just in that verse that we read? The writer is concerned that parents take time to teach their children who will teach their children who will teach their children. You know, the Bible says, and we're aware of this, of course, that the sins of the fathers are visited to the third and the fourth generation. Now, that doesn't mean that the third and the fourth generation are accountable for our sins, for my sin or your sins. It just simply means this. What I do affects my children, which affects my grandchildren, and the children that they are going to raise, that fourth generation, right? We have impact, impact. Grandparents, I want to just tell you, you have impact upon your grandchildren, and they're going to have impact upon their grandchildren, and it's going to come from you. You right now are impacting the leaders of two generations away. You better be intentional about that, and you better focus upon the intergenerational nature of the Word of God. We are supposed to be involved in the younger generation. That's very clear. When Paul talks about uh, discipleship to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, he tells Timothy that you are to take the things you've learned from me. Paul would be one generation. Timothy would be two. And he said, and you pass them on to faithful men, that's three, who will be able to teach others also, that's four. Every Christian is supposed to have a four-generation impact. Now, if you're living an apathetic life in sin, you are, but it's a negative impact. God wants us to have positive impact. And that's why in the church, we can't just look and see something that Isaac is doing with the students and go, eh, that doesn't concern me. Oh, yes, it does. It does if you understand the scripture. It does if you're smart. It does if you care. We've got to have an impact on them. And sometimes we don't understand them, but being frank, they don't always understand us or get us either. Times do change. And they're into a lot of things we never even dreamed of when we were kids. 
but they still need a smile. They still need prayer. They still need to talk. They still need our impact. They still need to hear stories about what took place in our childhood and things that we've heard from people that went on before us. They may not act like they're interested, but I promise you, as a formerly rebellious, stubborn, 14, 15-year-old teenager, I remember to this day some of those things that made me roll my eyes, that made me want to, oh, they're talking about that again, but I remember them now, and at this age, I wish I knew more. Don't you wish you could go and talk to people who have gone on to be with the Lord now to ask them some questions about things that matter? But don't take that to mean that you don't have any kind of an impact. As you grow older, you have tremendous impact. Share these things. It's got to be intergenerational or it's going to fall apart. The train becomes unhooked and we don't want to be responsible for anything like that at all. When you think about the intergenerational aspect of Christianity and all of that, that, that intergenerational thing kind of uh, tells us a family emphasis on this. The church is a family. We're part of the family of God. And inside of the family of God, inside of His kingdom, He's put us in families as well. And we are supposed to interact and to pass these things on. What's the beginning of that? Avoidance. We avoid the young and the young avoid us. And so we're in different worlds. We're in different eras. We're in different... Um, Sometimes we're miles apart when we're in the same room, aren't we? And uh, granted, there are some things they like that you're never going to like. And there are some things you like they're never going to understand. But there is a place where those two things come together and they intersect. There are common things that every human being since Adam, there are certain things we want, we like, we need, all of those. Find those things out and just show love and just show interest in them and then take every opportunity you can to invest in their life. Don't avoid them, and uh, please, please get involved. And then the last thing is, this is supposed to be internal. See where we're going here? Internal. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 8. And they may not be like their fathers. Well, that was uh, sort of a slap in the face. You know what Asaph is saying? If he were standing here in front of me instead of this camera... He would say, Greg, here's the deal. I don't want your kids to be like you. Really? But as you think about that, do you want them to be like you? Well, in some ways and in some respects, of course. But you know, I raised my three children with the idea that I wanted them to be a better parent than I was. I want them to love the Lord more than I do. I want them to know more than I know. I want to launch them. Remember what the Bible says? Children are like arrows. What do you do with an arrow? You pull, it, pull the bowstring back and then you release it so that the arrow goes out further than you could go. It goes places you're not going to go. It goes out ahead of you. I wanted our home to be a launch pad for our three children. And so when you think about this, you have to get to the heart of the matter, I think we should say. You see, I find a, a lot of parents, this is nothing new, because Sammy and I had to battle this, our parents had to battle this, and I watch young parents now in our church 
have to battle this as well. When you're going through Walmart and you have the two-year-old sitting in the cart who is screaming bloody murder, it's embarrassing. And at that particular point, because we've all kind of been there, haven't we? You just want the kid to shut up. Everybody is looking at you. They're wondering what kind of parent you are. They're wondering what kind of kid this is. I mean, all kinds of things enter your mind. So what do you do? You tell them that they need to hush or there'll be consequences. And at that particular moment, when I would do that or Sammy would do that, I kind of have an idea that the glory of God and the child's well-being was not at the top of our priority list at that moment. You know what it was? You, kid, are making me, as a parent, look bad. So if we're not careful, we start training our children to act in a way that won't embarrass us. Appearance is what matters. The way that you dress. Am I saying that's not important? Of course not. The way that they act, their manners and their interaction with other people. Am I saying that's not important? Of course not. But if we're not careful, all we do is moralize them. All we do is make them appear to be a certain way, and that is something that attracts attention to us. And people will say, oh, you've got good kids. Well, of course I do. Look at me. Oh, you are a wonderful parent. You do such a good job with your kids. Well, of course I do. Look how wise and look how smart and look how godly that I am. If we're not careful, all we teach our children to do is this external action that brings glory to us. Asaph is saying, you've got to aim higher than that, folks. You've got to aim for the glory of God. And a lot of people miss any kind of richness in their Christian life because they make it all about them and they miss the glory of God. And we do that a lot of times in our parenting as well, don't we? I mean, time for honesty here. A lot of times we are so careful to make sure that we look good, we forget that there is a God to be known and honored. There is a God to be loved and there is a God who is to be believed. And we've got to get that across to our children, and we've got to get to the heart of the matter. Sammy and I tried to discipline more on heart, more on attitude, than we did action. So, uh, you know, one of our kids, when they were little, if we told them that they weren't allowed to touch the coffee table, and they looked at us like two-year-olds can do, and they touch it anyway, well, that may not have been a big deal. They'd been a big deal. They didn't hurt anything. It wasn't really all that destructive, and it was just a little bit of defiance, but it was defiance. Now, there were other times that they might disobey us, and we could tell they were just, it was an accident. They forgot, and so it changed the whole thing. We tried to look at the heart. That's where God looks, and that's where real change begins or it ends. And if we keep it all external, then we miss the heart. When I was reading through this, um, it said they may not be like their fathers. Look at this, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that did not, uh uh-oh, here it is, set its heart aright. That's what we really want out of this new generation. And we want their spirit to be faithful to God. So if we are going to keep from losing our kids, I think Asaph gives us a perfect outline here 
in the way that we need to start approaching our children. And I think he is speaking to parents and to grandparents, aunts and uncles, you know, all of us. But I think he's also speaking to us as a church. Whether you have any children or not, you're in the family of God. Pray for and be involved in the next generation. As you progress up the generational ladder, I mean, you may be somewhere in the middle, you may be at the bottom, or you may be like I am, approaching the top. This is not the time to check out. This is the time to check in. This is the time to go to battle. We know what these kids are up against, and we ought to be the ones wise enough to know what the stakes are. We've got to help. We've got to be involved. We've got to train and we've got to pray, and we've got to be there to support, we've got to be there to pick up, we've got to be there to help people, because those who are younger than us, let's just face it, they're never going to be as perfect as we were. In fact, the older I get, the better I was. Isn't that right? You know what? They're going to make mistakes just like I did, and they're going to need support just like I needed it. And we need to be there for them, not to say, I told you so, or you should have known better. They're already humiliated and hurting enough, but to love them and to help them get up and to encourage them and to help them move along the way in the right way. And what is the big enemy of all of this? It's that everything turns into an appearance thing. And I think that one of the failures that churches have had for a few generations is we were so concerned about our appearance and what other people would think. We were concerned about how it would look. After all, I'm a pastor. After all, I'm a member of a Baptist church. After all, and all of those kind of things. And yet our hearts were not faithful. We did not have a right spirit within us. And we were stubborn. We didn't listen to the word. And we didn't change when the spirit prompted us because we were content to have the right appearance. And when you only have the right appearance you have very little impact. And that shows up, especially in the children that we raise. And that is why 70% of them, when they graduate, will leave the church. That's heartbreaking. But we can do something about it, and the Bible addresses it. Let's start getting interested in the things of God as we should be. And as we go through this little outline, Maybe God will open up some doors for you to make some correction if you're still raising your children. Or maybe it opens up a door for you to get involved in someone else's life for the glory of God and also for their good. And after all, if the commandments are that we are to love God with everything we've got and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, shouldn't that be in the family? And shouldn't that be in the church? And shouldn't that be the way the church acts in a society that is so self-destructive? We have the answers in Jesus. May Jesus be glorified in us. And may Jesus be glorified in you as you apply this for His sake and for His cause and for His kingdom and for the sake of the precious ones that are following us. Let's leave a good legacy. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this. I pray for your protection, and I pray that you're feeling the presence and the love of God, and I look forward to when we can be together again. But until then, may the Lord bless you. Thank you so much.